0: Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you struggle planing the edges of really thin stock? Are you interested in trying a dado plane but don't know where to start? Is wood movement making you bonkers? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 28 of the show for June 20th, 2018. I'm uh, a little late. Uh, I was supposed to have an episode out last week, but uh, things have just been absolutely nuts here uh, around the... uh, Homestead and uh, just trying to get stuff done on the cabin, and we were traveling a little bit, so uh with everything going on, it just wasn't gonna happen last week, so we got one this week, and uh, hopefully I will have another one for you next week, so we'll go two weeks we'll try to go two weeks in a row this time instead of biweekly so uh, but before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank our new patrons, uh Dave Chalice and Dave Nanamura. Thank you both for signing up on Patreon to support the show and thanks to all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com brfinewoodworking And if you pledge $3 or more, $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once a month only patron only video episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So this week's show, because of, of how busy things have been around here and how crazy it's been, um, I don't actually have a main topic. Um, so what we're going to do instead is just kind of extend the show a little bit by getting into um, a few additional questions, a few additional listener, listener questions more than uh, we would typically do. So instead of, uh, you know, I don't have any feedback but uh, instead of, you know, going through uh, a main topic this week, we're just going to go through and we're going to do a bunch of listener questions. So today's first question comes from Roland Wallbank. Roland wants to know, how do you plane a long, thin edge and keep it square? I have a piece of 2 by 2 by 3 inch thick stock, and no matter how square I think I am, my edge always seems to be skewed. So... Um, Three-eighths of an inch, three-eighths of an inch can be done with practice, I think. Um, once you start to get thinner than that, it starts to really get tough to to balance a plane on the edge. And even three-eighths of an inch, you know, once you get below half inch, three-eighths of an inch, um, it starts to get a little hairy. Um, a smaller plane sometimes helps, um, but if it's a long piece and you're trying to use a jack plane or a joiner plane, um, you know, it's going to be a challenge um, you can try stacking several pieces together as one way to do it. So if you have a bunch of 3 eight inch long pieces that uh, you need to plane the edges square on, try clamping two or three or four of them together in your bench vise at the same time and planing them all square at the same time. Uh, that'll give you a little bit more registration for the plane and help you to keep things from, from tipping and skewing. Uh, another option, of course, is to use a shooting board. Nothing wrong with uh, making yourself a uh, an edge grain shooting board. They're usually pretty long, you know, anywhere from from four to eight feet long, depending on the the length of the stock you need to plane. And they work just like a regular end grain shooting board, but they're used for planing the edge grain. You can uh, add a couple of of holdfast um, holdfasts to the stock to keep it from sliding. Sometimes it helps, um, since the fence is typically short and the fence is holding the end grain, and you've got this long, long area of um, of edge grain that needs to be planed. Sometimes it may want to flex. You can add a a fence to that shooting board if you know you know that you, that you've got uh, a certain amount, and, and most of your boards are going to be planed the same width. You can tack on a temporary fence with a couple of nails just to kind of keep those um, those boards from flexing if they if they're kind of narrow, um, and that'll help as well. Or just you know knock in a couple hold flat, hold fasts or a couple clamps to hold the stock in place, and uh, the shooting board will will certainly help quite a bit. So our next question comes from Hugo Belargen and he wants to know about dado planes. He says you talked about dado planes in episode sixteen. Can you give some advice for a beginner? Which ones to buy and what sizes? New versus old, wood versus metal, etc. So dado planes. Um you know, in terms of new versus old, I'll answer that question first. You're pretty much gonna be going with old. Um I don't know. Some of the wooden plane makers, I think that the new wooden plane makers are starting to add dado planes to their repertoires and their and their offerings now, but for the most part, up until this point um, i don 't think that any of today 's modern plane makers are making dado planes um, at least i 've never seen any for sale you know i haven 't looked for them that hard, but um, from what i 've seen, most of them are making molding planes they 're making you know, they may make rabbit planes, um, bench planes, obviously, but very few are making joinery planes other than the, the rabbit planes. I don't see too many making anything but, you know, like maybe a, a rabbit or a moving filister plane. Um, but I don't see too many plow planes. I don't see too many dado planes being made. So um, I don't know that you're going to have too many choices in terms of new planes for dado planes. I think you're going to pretty much be stuck with looking at old planes. Then you want to look at, you know, well, do you want something like an old wooden plane or the old metal dado planes like the Stanleys? Personally, I've never used the Stanleys. I have handled them, but I have never actually used them in a real woodworking situation. However, just from the limited handling I have done of them, I do not imagine that they would be very comfortable in use. Um, the stanley metal dado planes have a a giant adjusting screw at the front and that area where that adjusting screw is is a spot where you pretty much need to hold the plane with your your off hand your leading hand Um, and that is just it makes it for a very uncomfortable plane to hold and when you're planing dados you're planning across the grain you're planning with a skewed iron and if you're looking at a wide dado. You're going to need to be putting a pretty good amount of pressure on that plane, and I can imagine that screw being extremely uncomfortable um, for anything but the, you know, just a couple of passes. So my recommendation is 100%. Go with a wooden dado plane. They're absolutely fabulous to work with when they're tuned up right. In terms of sizes, you have to look at what you want that plane for and what sizes of stock you typically work with. Three-quarter-inch dado planes are relatively rare. Um, I did find one years ago in almost pristine shape. Um, I bought it. I used it for a few years, and I ended up selling it, um, which I kind of regret. But, um, you know, I I did sell that plane. But if you can get yourself a three-quarter-inch dado plane, that will actually work pretty well for pre-surface stock from the home center. Um, You know, folks worry about stock from the home center not being flat or or cupping or or whatever. And the beautiful thing about a dado is a dado can pretty much take that out. So if you get some stock, you know, if you're making a cabinet or something along those lines, you plane yourself a three-quarter inch dado with a three-quarter inch dado plane. Um, And if your stock is just a tiny little bit cupped, you can usually manage to squeeze it in that dado and the dado will actually take the cup out. So um I wouldn't worry too much, you know, about if the stock isn't flat. If you use if you mill your own stock to three quarter of an inch commonly, a three quarter inch dado plane is a good size. The mo- the size you'll most commonly find them in um will be seven eighths and fifteen sixteenths because hand plane stock was typically uh, closer to 7 eighths or 15 sixteenths, but they were available in sizes all the way down to I, I, I've seen them as small as a quarter of an inch um, in 16th of an inch increments now you don't need them all um, I want to I have a video in mind that I want to do at some point I just don't know exactly when I'm going to get to it but um, if you go back and you look into Peter Nicholson's book, The Mechanic's Companion, he talks about dado planes in that book. And in, that, in his description of the dado plane, the only one he describes is a 3 inch dado plane. And the fact is, if you have a 3 8 inch dado plane, you can, for the most part, make any size dado you want from 3 inch and bigger. And the trick is you just move the fence as you as you do it. Now, of course, you have to make multiple passes, so it kind of defeats the purpose of making the the tool, making the dados fast. Um, that's kind of my why I like dado planes because I think they're extremely fast. You can make dados by um, knifing the side walls and uh, and sawing down with a back saw, and then removing the waste with the chisel and cleaning up with a router plane. But it's slow. Dado planes are extremely extremely fast if they're sharp and tuned up well. But if you're going to make a three-quarter inch dado or a one-inch dado and all you've got is a three-eighth inch dado plane, the speed factor kind of goes away. So, you know, then it's sort of a balance. Well, you know, do I just saw the edges and clean up with a router plane or use the dado plane but move the fence? Kind of a toss-up there. Um, But I do like dado planes. Um, If you have, again, the sizes I would really recommend... um, is really going to depend upon the size of the work that you're doing. If you're making small cabinets, you may want a half inch um, if you've got like little half inch shelves. But think about the shelves and the the size of the work that you're doing and size your dado plane to the size of your work and I think you'll be in good shape. So our next question comes from Ben and Ben has a voicemail on replacement irons for transitional plane.
1: Hi, Bob. My name is Ben. Uh, My question is, I'm looking for a replacement iron for a transitional jointer. It's about 20 inches, so maybe that makes it a four-plane. Either way, I'm using it as a jointer. And um, the uh, cap iron and the iron are actually bent. Uh, So I'm looking for a replacement for it Offline I found a replacement Stanley 2 and 5-8 iron and cap iron for about 20 bucks, which is about what I purchased the plane for. I think that's probably fine. My only question is whether it will work if the uh, positioning of the uh, uh, the adjuster is going to cause a problem there. Anyway, uh, let me know. Thank you so much. Bye bye.
0: So Ben, uh, I think you'll be fine with the iron. Just about. I mean Stanley, I think pretty much standardized the uh, the irons. So, you know, any old Stanley iron that is the right width for the plane you you have, I think, should work just fine. Um, in fact, most irons probably would work just fine, whether it's a Stanley or not, as long as it's the same width. Where you're going to run into an issue, and I think you already know this, is uh, it sounded like it from your, your voicemail, is with the cap iron. What I don't know is if the Stanley... If Stanley standardized their cap irons, and I'm not a a tool historian, so um, I'm I'm probably not the best person to answer this question, but um, my guess is you'll probably be fine if you stick with a Stanley cap iron, but it might be a little bit difficult to, to know if you have a Stanley cap iron or not because typically they did not stamp their name on the cap iron, they stamped their name on the iron. Um, so, just by looking at the cap iron, it can be difficult to know if it's actually a Stanley or not. What I would suggest is to take your your existing cap iron with you, and you know when you're shopping for one, and see if you can match it up to see if it um, if everything would um, would jive in the, in the plane. Alternatively, take a measurement from the edge of the cap iron to the hole where the yoke engages the cap iron for the adjustment and ask questions. If you find a a cap iron online, whether it's on eBay or from an old tool dealer, ask them what that measurement is between the edge of the cap iron, the the leading edge that goes up against the cutting edge of the blade and where that hole for that uh, adjustment starts, because that's going to be the critical dimension. Um, So You'll probably be fine again if it's a Stanley um a Stanley cap iron. But again, you gotta look out for you know, cap irons that have been swapped. I've was in a situation years ago. I bought a number four plane and uh it was a Stanley plane. The iron was a Stanley. Um the cap iron apparently was not. Um there was no way to really know because the, again, as I mentioned, the cap iron itself was not marked in any way, and they're usually not. But when I assembled the plane and tried to adjust, it just wouldn't happen. The, the adjuster could not move the iron far enough forward because the hole where the yoke engaged the cap iron just did not was not in the right place for this particular plane. So, uh, again, that's going to be the critical factor. Um, so, if you can ensure that you get yourself as Stanley cap iron I think you'll be fine if your plane is a Stanley um, otherwise you may want to just note that measurement from the edge of the the chip breaker to the hole for the uh, for the adjuster and make sure that the new one that you get that dimension matches uh, and you should be in good shape so our next question comes from Matt Bodin and Matt says I am new to woodworking and was asked to build an outdoor bench for the school I'm a teacher at. I've built my workbench, some small cherry boxes, and some walnut shelving, but no pieces that will live outside. I'm in Seattle, so this bench will be wet for 10 months of the year. Do you have any advice on choice of material for this? How about finish and glue? Should I draw bore, mortise, and tenon joints to compensate for glue breaking down in the sun and elements? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. So, um, all right, let's, so let's back up and look at your first question, choice of material. So there are actually quite a few woods that would suffice for this. Anything that's going to be particularly rot resistant. White oak is a good choice. Cypress, if you can get it, cedar, redwood, um, in Seattle, being on the West coast, uh, huge, huge boat building industry out there look at what the boat builders are, are using. Um, and there are plenty of woods that you should be able to use to build this bench. Um, and you should have easy access to them because being in Seattle, um, there's a lot of Pacific Northwest woods that are great and, uh, and very rot resistant. So look at what the boat builders are, are using um, and, and you should be in good shape. Um, and pick something that is local to the area and and rot resistant and something you know that the boat builders typically like to use and i think you'll be okay in terms of um, material selection in terms of your glue i don't think it's going to matter a lot of people will say use epoxy because it's pretty much impervious but the problem is even epoxy is not going to be it's yeah it's impervious to moisture but there are other things going on. There's oxidation, there's UV, um, you know, there's, there's the constant freezing and thawing. And while epoxy is great, the epoxy, an epoxy bond typically breaks at about 140 to 150 degrees. And you may not think that that's an issue, but if this bench is going to live in direct sunlight, it's going to be blasted with heat for most of its life. Um, so no, I think no matter what glue you're going to use at some point, that glue is going to fail. If this project is living outside just from the constant movement of the piece from the moisture exchange and and the equilibrating to all these different humidity swings, uh, sun exposure, moisture exposure, uh, freezing and thawing and, and heating any glue is going to fail. So I would plan for that regardless of what glue you're going to use, whether you want to go with something as simple as hide glue to an epoxy, a boat building epoxy, or what have you. I mean, if you look at old wooden boats, the glues still fail. The epoxy coatings still fail. The varnishes still fail. They have to be renewed. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, So I wouldn't be looking for something that is going to be permanent because I don't think anything is going to be. I would instead look for something that is either going to be easy to fix or make sure you mechanically reinforce the joint or both. Um, I would probably go with an epoxy just because it's going to be easier to fix than a, um, a PVA, I think, because epoxy can, is gap filling, whereas a PVA is not. Um, and an epoxy will also stick to itself, whereas a PVA will not. So I would look either at, at, something like hide glue and there are additives you can put to hide glue to make it more water resistant. Um, and if you buy Stephen Shepard's book, hide glue, he goes through how to make hide glue waterproof. So that's an option. Um, and then again, you can use the epoxy as well. But regardless of what glue you choose, it's most likely going to fail at some point in the future. And the only way to keep the piece from falling apart and having to do major repairs is going to be to mechanically reinforce those joints. Wedge your joints, draw bore your joints, whatever you have to do. So I would do all of the above to make sure that you know this thing is going to remain solid through all of that moisture and heat and cold exposure. In terms of finish... Anytime I'm dealing with an outdoor project, I want something that is easy to repair. No matter what finish you put on, just like your glue, it is going to break down. The sun is going to break it down. The temperature is going to break it down. It's going to craze. It's going to crack. It's going to chip. It's going to fade. Things are going to happen to that finish in a few years, and there is absolutely no way you are going to prevent it. So instead of trying to use some type of ridiculous finish that is may have to be repaired in five years, but is going to take you days or weeks to repair it because you have to sand off and remove all the old finish, I would lean towards a finish that is more easily repairable. Something like a spar varnish. Um, Again, you're in boat building country, um, you know, look for something that the boat builders are using. Uh, A spar varnish is a is a nice finish. It's durable. It's made for the outside. It has a high oil content, and it also is fairly easy to renew. You can sand it and put another coat, couple coats on it in a in a couple of years, um, and it will be just as good as new. I've got a canoe that I built a new thwart and yoke for, probably going on five or six years ago now, and I used um, just Cabot spar varnish from the home center, um, and the canoe lives outdoors year round. It sees sun, it sees lots of temperature changes and that spar varnish is holding up real well. So um, I would probably go with a spar varnish and I expect when the finish does break down and it will break down eventually. um, The spar varnish is fairly simple to to repair. You can sand it, you can scrape it, uh, get all the loose stuff off, give it a light sanding and recoat right over top of whatever's left on there without uh, having to worry about it too much. So I would lean towards something easy to repair versus something that, is claiming you're going to get a longer life out of, but is going to be much more difficult to repair. So our last question actually comes from two people. Um, it, it's basically the same question, almost the same question that I got from two different folks. So um, I'm going to read both. The, well, one of them was a one of them was an email, and one of them was a voicemail. So uh, I will first play the voicemail from Scott.
1: Hey Bob, this is Scott. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now and uh, really appreciate all the content you've been putting out there. Uh, I've been doing woodworking for about two years. Started with uh, hand tools both because they were affordable but honestly I just appreciated uh, the way it kind of slowed me down and uh, just the connection to uh, my being able to feel the wood and work the wood into uh, the different projects that, that I'm doing. My workbench was my first big project and have uh, just kind of never looked back. But my question today is specifically about uh, wood movement. Um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. Specifically, um, I've heard you talk about your workshop being very open to the weather elements and I appreciated the the content that you talked about uh, a few episodes back regarding Uh, keeping your tools in wooden boxes to keep them from humidity. I've taken lots of notes working on my toolboxes now but uh, specifically when you're creating furniture to be used inside of the house um, I've run into a problem where uh, due to the humidity that's in my shop and kind of just what I have to deal with in my working space I will uh, put work into a board Uh, put it together into uh, I made a a table, an entry table for my mom. And when I took the table out of my working environment and put it into uh, a uh, environment that was similar to what was going to be at her house, I could tell there was a board that was kind of, uh, torquing the top a little bit, trying to, to bring the legs, um, out of square where they're not all four touching the, the, uh, ground equally. So I didn't know if you had any, uh, uh, suggestions or, or tr- tips I know a lot of times people will try to acclimate their wood to the area that their project is going to be based in but uh, with my working environment being basically a, a shed that's open to the elements um, I don't have the luxury of working in an environment that will mimic the final destination of the furniture so any tips you could do uh, there and also tips to help uh, level out you know, tables once they, they start to act up in inside the, uh, uh, the home would be really helpful. Thanks a lot for the, the work that you've done and the, uh, uh, all the information that you make available to us all. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks a lot. Bye.
0: Okay. Thank you, Scott, for that voicemail. And and I actually have a, an email from Dave Chalice and his email is a similar question. He says, I'm a relatively new woodworker based in the UK and I use hand tools for all my stock prep. I'm struggling a bit with timing of when and how to approach stock preparation with only limited shop time. Usually, I just have weekends. In order to best deal with wood movement. An example with a table I was making recently, I left the wood, kiln dried wood, to sit at home for a month before starting, then spent a weekend getting all four legs square, cut the length, etc. I started on the joinery the following week, by which time all the legs had gotten very out of square again. I squared them all off marked them for mortising, cut the mortises and tenons for two of them, then ran out of shop time. By the next weekend, the remaining two legs had moved once again, and my joinery marks were now in the wrong place. By squaring them once again, they ended up undersized compared to the first two legs I worked on. I'm wondering if there's a different approach I should be taking here to avoid this sort of thing. Do I have to be careful to always allow time for doing both prep and joinery on the same day? Should I be getting stock square over a longer period of time to give it a chance to move each time some wood is planed? Should I allow stock even longer to settle before cutting the size and planing? So uh, both questions really having to do with wood movement. So specifically to Dave's question on, let's just think about how we can, how to, uh, or talk about how to kind of plan for this a little bit. Now, you know, it's been said time and time again but it always deserves a a bit of reiteration um, wood moves you know we have to accept that fact it doesn't matter what we do unless we want to work with MDF for you know the rest of our lives we have to accept the fact that wood moves and it's going to move Um, it's never going to get or maintain um, engineering tolerances it's just not going to happen so we can't prevent it we can't stop it we can't control it the best we can do is to plan for it we plan for it in the design of our projects we can plan for it in the way we prep our lumber we can plan for it uh, in the way that we cut our joinery but the fact of the matter is we cannot stop it Um, you know to dave's question in in terms of stock preparation I do not, as a as a, a hand tool user, I don't do all of my stock preparation at one time. I typically try to prepare only the stock that I'm going to be working on for a particular day. Um, so if I'm going to make a table, I might prepare the stock for two, two legs, You know, if I know I can't get an entire table base assembled in a single day, I might prepare the stock for two of the table's legs, chop the mortises, and make the the single apron that joins those two legs and put that one assembly together, that, that half assembly. Then the next day, I might do the other two table legs and chop the mortises and make the apron that holds that assembly together. Now I have two... Half assemblies. Um, they they may still move. They may twist. Things may happen. But at least we've got that one assembly together, and then we can we can adjust as we move forward. In terms of stock prep, a lot of it has to do with the stock that you're using. Stock prep starts with stock selection, um, and too few people actually pay very close attention to stock selection. Uh, You know, sometimes we're limited and, and that's just a fact of the matter, but the way Dave, your, your question, the way I'm, I'm seeing this, that, you know, you, you planed up your leg stock um, and then it moved and then you planed it again and you started to lay out the joinery and then they moved again. And then you did a, a, a couple of your mortises and then they moved again to me. Something else is going on there. The stock shouldn't continue to move like that. Either the stock is bad or you've got some really weird weather patterns going on and, and it's really changing humidity you know, quite frequently. Um, you're in the UK, so that is certainly a possibility. Um, but I would challenge you to think about your stock selection a little more closely before you worry about stock preparation because I'm I'm guessing that you might not be using the most ideal stock for what you're building. So if I'm building a table and I'm going to, let's say I need one and a half inch stock for table legs, like like a shaker table or something like that, I'm going to make sure that I'm using rifts on stock for the legs. So if I look at the end grain, I want that stock I want the the grain direction in the end grain of that stock to be diagonal. I want it to run from corner to corner of the leg stock that's going to do a couple of things it's going to one give me consistent look on all four faces of that leg so i'm going to get nice straight vertical grain vertical lines on all four faces of the leg so that's number one and that's to me that's important just that that visual aesthetic. But the other thing that that rift sawn stock is going to do is it's going to cont- help to, not I don't want to say control because, again, we can't control it. It's going to help plan for the movement because no matter which type of stock you use, if you've got a piece of stock that's an inch and a half square and it was flat sawn, one, two faces are going to be flat sawn faces and two faces are going to be quarter sawn faces. That means that that stock is going to move in different differently in the two different directions. If you look at wood movement tables, wood moves radially and it moves tangentially. It moves very, very negligibly in its length. So we don't have to worry about that too much. But tangent to the growth rings and and, uh, perpendicular or radial to the growth rings, it moves in both of those directions, but it doesn't move the same amount. Typically, it moves a higher percentage tangent to the growth rings than it does radially. Which is why quarter sawn stock is so desired for um, you know wide panels and things like that because that radial movement is much less percentage wise than tangential movement. Well, if you've got a quarter sa- a, a square piece where you've got one face that's quarter sawn and one face that's flat sawn that piece isn't gonna stay square for very long. If, if there's some change in moisture, you get some storms that roll in, and you know, a couple days later, you've had rain for a few days and that wood has absorbed some moisture, it's not gonna stay square because it doesn't move the same amount tangent to the growth rings as it does um, radially or perpendicular to the growth rings. By using rifts on stock, where the grain is running corner to corner, that change can be accounted for, I guess you could say. The stock is still gonna move. It's still gonna move more in the tangential plane than it is going to move in the radial plane. But you can help your stock stay a little bit squarer by using that Riffson stock. So that's the first thing that I would focus on is make sure your, your, your stock selection process is sound. Look at where the different parts of the board that you're using are going to end up and make sure that you're planning for the movement that's going to occur based on the type of stock that you're using, whether it's quarter sawn, flat sawn, rift sawn, and how much that particular species of wood is going to move. So that's the first step. Um, the second step, again, is to think about your stock preparation. And again, as I mentioned, I try to do small Small steps at a time. So, I will not prep all of my stock for the entire project all at one time. I know a lot of folks who use machines will do that, um, and that's fine. But even if you're going to prep your stock by machine, if you're then going to go do hand cut joinery and you're going to leave that stock sitting for a while, chances are it's going to move um, at least a little bit. So, you know, if it's sitting around and not being assembled, things are going to move, things are going to get out of square, things are going to change just a little bit. So I like to work on small pieces at a time, small parts at a time, Um, small sub assemblies, let's say. If I can, if I've got to build a drawer, I'll try to build that entire drawer in one day. Even if I can't glue it up, I'll dry assemble it. And that's another trick that you can use. If you can't glue things up and get it assembled, dry fit and dry assemble your pieces and leave them assembled and that's going to help a little bit as well to keep things from moving as much or at least you're not again you're not going to prevent the movement but it's it may help you avoid fit issues later if you dry assemble it and leave it assembled um, so that's another option that you can take um when you're doing your stock prep, if you're dealing with a wood that's particularly, particularly prone to movement with uh, moisture changes, you are going to want to, you may want to plane it a couple times. Um, I did a, a video on skip planing several years ago. Um, you know, it's it's a term that is most often used in the machine world, but you can do it in the hand tool world as well, where you just roughly, you know, plane both faces of a board real quick and dirty. Don't think about getting, you know, nice, flat, pristine, get it somewhat flat, but you know, take out off all the rough sawing, um, take off the mill marks, get it roughly flat, but we're expecting it to move. So don't plane it to final size and then let it sit for a few days and then plane it again and then do your joinery right away. Um, and that'll help you as well. Um, And you could also just be dealing with stock that has a lot of tension in it. You know, if you're dealing, if you're working with construction lumber, a lot of times um, that lumber was sawn from trees that are not exactly the best quality. Um, I live actually in in lumber territory where I am now, and they do a lot of sawing around here um, for construction lumber they they grow forests of white pine and uh, and millet and a lot of the mills around here but i live in the mountains and most of the forests that they're doing all this milling in are in the mountains and a lot of these pine trees grow on the sides of mountains and what that does is create a lot of tension in the wood and a lot of stress so you'll plane it and it moves, and you'll plane it again, and it moves again. And you'll plane it a third time, and it moves a third time. And there's just nothing you can do in those cases where it's it's not an issue of moisture or changes in humidity. It's an issue of uneven tension in the wood because of where the particular tree that those boards came from grew. Whether it grew on a hillside, maybe it grew... Um, you know, with a lot of, of wind, you know maybe it was on the outside edge of the forest, and it it took the majority of the wind so there's a lot of factors that could go into it um, that could create tension in a board. But when you have those situations where the board has a lot of tension, internal stress, and internal tension uh, it doesn't matter how many times you cut it, how many times you plane it it's just going to continue to move, and there's nothing you can do about it sometimes if it's causing that much of a problem, you just kind of have to throw in the towel and, and start over with a, a new piece of wood that's going to behave a little bit better. Um, then we get into uh, things like what, what Scott was asking about, moving your wood from one place to another. You know, my wood sits outside in in, uh, in my shed. All the lumber that I have sits outside in my shed. Um, it's subject to whatever movement and and tension and moisture changes and heat and cold that the outside air, um, has going on. So, you know, that's just where it is. I don't bring it into the house to acclimate. You know, most of it has been kiln dried. If it hasn't, it's been air dried for quite some time. So, um, it's as dry as it's going to get. And in some cases, I think air drying is even better because, um, it does tend to want to just stay in in sync with the environment a little bit better than kiln dried. But regardless, um, once you have your lumber and once it's settled in your environment for a week or so, um, it's fine to start working with after you know a week or two. But again, we need to keep in mind that it's going to it's going to move. Things are going to happen as we're working on it things are going to happen to the finished project where it get when it gets to its final destination um i built a bible box several years ago it had carved oak sides and it had a white pine top and bottom um and it was it was built true to period i mean it was a a dead-on reproduction you know we used Um, Forged nails to attach the bottom. It used cleats and forged nails to uh, attach the lid. The lid was a single board of white pine. The bottom was a single board of white pine. And everything was fine here in my environment um, in the mountains of Southwest Virginia. Well, the person that bought that box happens to live uh, in northern U.S. on the Canadian border. And bought the box at the time it was uh, approaching winter and it had already been quite cold up there on the Canadian border. And the heat had been going for quite a long time and they had forced air heat. And I shipped the box and they unpacked the box and brought it into the house. And no sooner did he bring it into the house and a day later the bottom had shrunk and warped and cracked right at the nail hole. And uh, we had a, a, you know, a discussion about it and he was fine with it because it's, you know, it was a period reproduction uh, and that's just how it is. And uh, he had other, you know, pine furniture, period, pine furniture in his house that had done the same thing. So he understood that, but for months and months and months, that box sat in my shop going through winters, summers, and it was just fine. And as soon as he brought it into an extremely dry environment uh, up on the, you know, on the uh, the uh, the northern part of the U.S., right on, on the Canadian border, extremely dry in the winter, um, and it cracked. And, you know, there was really nothing you could do about it. Uh, again, I could have planned for that movement a little bit better in the building of the piece, and if it was a more modern design, I would have done that. But this was a piece that was meant to be a true reproduction of how things were built, you know, in the... 1730s or, or 1680s, I think this box was based on. So, um, you know, that's how it was built. It, that wasn't really accounted for. Um, the table that you talked about, Scott, that that again, that's sometimes it's just going to happen. You you bring you build a table, it sits flat on the floor in your shop. You bring it to it's where it's going to live, and you get a little twist in it could be a few things going on. First, it could be that the piece is moving. uh, Maybe one of the aprons twisted or something happened and it's pulling one of the legs up off the floor. Another possibility uh, is that you leveled it to the floor in your shop and the floor in your shop is not level and the floor in the house is, or vice versa. The floor in your shop might be level, but the floor in the house very likely is not. I don't worry about when I have those types of situations where, you know, tables don't sit perfectly flat and things like that, when I bring them in a the house, because chances are, um, you know, the, the, one of the floors is not flat. So if you know that the table is going to sit in the same place forever, you can adjust the table. You can cut the bottoms of the legs so that they will sit flat on the floor where it's going to be. The problem is if that table is ever moved to another room, another house, chances are the floor in the new location is not going to have the same amount of the degree of levelness as the floor in the location that it came from. And you're going to run into the same situation again. It's going to rock. You know, we find this with chairs. We find it with tables, anything with four legs. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. It's what's going to happen. If it's causing a huge problem where, you know, it's it's completely unstable, you've got a couple choices. You can, as I mentioned, cut the bottoms of the legs so that you can level the table to the floor where it's at. Or you can shim underneath the uh, one of the legs so that it sits Sits level, that, and that's another possibility to keep it sitting level. Um, but again, once you move that table to another area, chances are the problem's going to come back because most houses and most shops don't have level, f- perfectly flat, yeah, perfectly flat level floors. Um, and not only are they not perfectly flat and level, but when you move to another area, it's not going to have the same degree of out of levelness and out of flatness as where it came from in the first place. So, um, it's just kind of the nature of a four legged, uh, piece of furniture, whether it be a chair or a table. You, and again, you can't really, there's not much you can do about it. You know, you can build the piece that's to allow for movement, you know, not glue the 10 in the whole way down, leave some extra room in the mortise so that the tenon can move, um, you know, and pray that things don't, twist and warp you can try and hold the tabletop down with figure eights or buttons or some way to allow the tabletop to move and you can do all these things Um, but the fact of the matter is wood still moves you can't predict how it's going to move you can't predict when it's going to move and you can't predict how much Um, so these are just things that as furniture makers who work in solid wood ultimately we're going to have to learn to live with some of them Um, We're not going to be able to keep these things, you know, flat to engineering standards and like you can do with uh, man-made materials. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, the only other option is to go with the man-made materials, things like plywood and MDF. Um, You know, that's what manufacturers did uh, many, many years ago to avoid issues and, and to allow them to... Ship pieces flat packed and, and and assembled for that matter uh, all over the country and all over the world uh, and not have to deal with moisture issues but if you work with solid wood we're going to these are just things we're going to have to deal with and some of them we're just going to have to accept that things are not necessarily going to stay completely flat level and square all the time um, and we're just going to have to accept that if we want to continue to work with solid materials solid wood so that's it for this week's show. Uh, as always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this, because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at or you can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them at, on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt028. In the show notes, you can find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at Brfindwoodworking.com slash support. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay sharp, everybody.